0: I love
1: the suspense. Hello, hello, hello. (laughs) Guys, this is the Highbrow Book Club. I've been so (laughs) stoked about this podcast. It's just going to be a bunch of friends just gathering to read highbrow literature. Um, The first book we have on the podcast, is we're going to be talking about Anna Karenina. And I think we should do some introductions. Don't you all think we should (laughs) should do some introductions?
2: That's (laughs) a great idea. Absolutely.
1: All right, let's do it. I'll, I'll go first. My name is Cameron Vidal, and I am a pre-nursing student. And that's pretty much it. That's I don't have much going for me right now besides that, <laughs> but I'm really stoked for it. Um, and yeah, someone else talk.
3: I'm Elias <laughs> Longenecker, and I'm here because Cameron Vidal told me to be.
0: Cameron actually just forced all of us to be here. He wants to talk about books. Uh, My name is Emma Savoie, and I am doing this because I love to read. And I'm currently in D.C., just moved here. So I'm going to have fun kind of relating politics to whatever we're reading, because that's what's on my mind right now.
4: My name's Austin. I'm a med student and love to read in my free time. And I'm here to talk about books.
2: Let's go. My name is John, and I'm really excited. I'm an avid lover of life, and <laughs> I'm ready to read Anna Karenina. I, I like art. I like culture. Let's let's
4: do this. Let's freaking get it.
2: Let's get it,
1: guys. I'm. Let's just start with the with the good stuff.
2: What was y'all's favorite scenes in this first part of the book? Let's All talk. Right, about I'll go. That. I'll go. Uh, the ice rink, the ice skating rink, was one of my favorite parts. Um, whenever, whenever Levin is beholding the countenance of Kitty, the way that he describes <laughs> her, he talks about the the ground where she was standing. He it seemed unapproachably holy and and he likened her to the sun and that even when he was not looking she was like still she could still be seen just like the sun and I there, there's been some moments in my life where I've been stricken by this and it's he, he just like he articulated something of the human experience so poetically that um it resonated with me as a, as a young male.
4: <laughs> I feel like I've heard you explain something pretty similar to me before, John. You've, pretty, you've put that into words yourself.
2: Oh, man. He, look, I'm going to read a part. Can I really step down there on the ice and go over to her, he thought? The place where she stood seemed to him unapproachably holy. <laughs> and there was a moment where he almost went away. He was so filled with awe.
0: Mm. Beautiful. It sounds like you're speaking from your heart right there. Mm.
1: Mm. John, I really love that scene too. One really cool thing I realized like halfway I was reading that scene was because I don't think Tolstoy describes really what Kitty specifically looked like, but in my head I just envisioned just I don't know, I guess the ideal woman for me. (laughs) 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 And and then it hit me. I like laughed out loud. I was like, oh my gosh. I think I'm attracted to. Burnett's the most. I don't know. Like, because I was the woman I was envisioning across the ice. Like, I was there. I was 11 And you
0: had a self-revelation,
1: right? Also I didn't even have to say that. Yeah, right. And so now I'm thinking. I'm like, wow. Does that yeah. mean anything? I don't know. But that's just what I was. I remember thinking and laughing out loud when I read that part.
2: No,
0: I am curious. Do you guys – would you guys find Levin the most relatable character?
4: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: I'd say yes as well. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you mean by relatable. Like, do I relate to him or have I met people like him? Because I, I think of the characters I relate to Levin mm-hmm. the most. But I've, I've seen some step in my life for sure. <laughs>
4: i feel like every character that's come up i either know someone who is that person or i've like seen little pieces of them in myself mm-hmm. like, i just feel like tolstoy's done a good job of of writing people that are very real and fleshed out um and none of his characters are just like all bad or all good like mm-hmm. even oblonsky in the very beginning steva uh, like you know you think he's gonna be his, terrible dude like he's cheating on his wife and he's like one of the most lovable people in the book so I don't know
0: I kind of it, got the impression that a lot of the characters were ideals or extremes except for Levin like Anna Karenina is obviously painted as like this ideal woman and Kitty's like the desired woman and then um, Stefan is like the, the social success uh, Vronsky is the the man that everyone falls in love with type of person. But then Levin's kind of just like this grounded, hardworking individual who kind of goes back and forth on his philosophies. And the ideas he presents are a little more relatable, like you guys were saying, that might be too, um, too much of a blanket statement, but I don't know Mm -hmm. if you guys noticed that or not.
4: I'd like to dissect more of what you said about um, the ideal woman and then the desired Mm -hmm. woman. Like, what is the distinction there between those two?
0: Uh interesting.
4: If
3: only they were the same. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, nice. I mean, Kitty, Kitty is just like, she's the, the like ignorant, pure, like in a, ignorant in a good way. And like pure personality that's obviously desired by all the men. And she knows that. And you see that. But then Anna's is it like the, the ideal, one direction. And, like you don't know you're beautiful. Like that kind of thing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> for kitty uh,
0: i feel like kitty has an impression that she's beautiful but sure
2: okay, okay.
1: i'd like to read a section to break this down
2: wait wait wait, wait you <laughs> wait, wait finish your thought finish your thought you said go go on to anna I, I cut you off with harry styles we'd have
0: to um i'm kind of thinking about this on the fly but anna just i would use the word ideal because on one hand like bronski idealizes her but he doesn't exactly know why. It's just more of an impression overall that she just captivates everyone that's around her. They don't ever describe her as like particularly beautiful. Again, they don't describe her appearance, but it's more of the way that she just uh, draws everybody in and they can't take their eyes off of her in a way. I think Kitty describes her like um, when she goes to the ball, Kitty It's like, I wish she was wearing this one outfit because she would look more beautiful. But instead she was like, well, any outfit she wears, she just outclasses it because of just like her simple beauty. So it's not glamorous. It's not like desire. It's not more of a shallow thing. It's more of just an ideal, like a character aspect. We don't know much about Anna yet, but the way that she interacts with everybody, Dolly pushing that relationship and like reconciliation between Dolly and Stefan Everything she does is a little more genuine, it feels, which is really interesting because the book plays out very dramatically in regard to her. Um, But so far, she just seems like the most genuine, ideal character.
2: An interesting point on that is that we get to know Anna through the perspective of Kitty, mostly. And so Mm -hmm. it it is interesting that you see her as the ideal woman because it's like a woman is articulating... like. you're you're viewing Anna through the lens of Kitty, who's describing
4: her as an ideal woman. Yeah, like Kitty says, like oh, she has this like secret world going on that I can't fathom or know about, and it's that's just off of like watching her interact, like in a parlor room or something with somebody.
0: Mm. Well, I think it's more than just Kitty though, because because is also captivated by her. Stefan asks her to come and visit to to fix his whole relationship, which she does. Dolly is aware that she's coming to try to fix everything and is resistant to it, but then ends up caving because of how genuine Anna is. So Anna really does drive and change the whole plot because it's being set up one way as like this affair and Vronsky marrying Kitty and all that at the beginning of the the first part. But as soon as Anna comes, almost all those plot lines switch which is why I think she might be the name. She's very mm. central in driving the plot so far.
2: Okay. That's am I, point. am I, am I crazy? Is it, I th- for some reason? I thought Anna was Steve's sister. Is that not the thing?
4: Mm-hmm. No, that, that's true.
2: Okay. Yeah. okay. 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 I was just making sure. Yeah. I feel like she's also kind of
3: described or portrayed as being ideal. Like one of her traits is just that she clearly has a lot of depth to her where mm-hmm. um, she's just, portrayed as being an interesting and thoughtful person and people want to know more about her, but at the same time, she's kind of wrapped up in everybody else's lives. I think it's portrayed that like she sees herself as being misunderstood or not fully understood. And that's like her motivator for wanting to get uh, to know other people more, which I think everyone sees as being a likable trait. Um, Just people who take a genuine interest in other people's lives
1: yeah i kind of want to read that section real quick because i just think it's a really cool contrast between those two characters between kitty and anna at the ball it's like one of my favorite sections of the book i'm just going to read this quote it's awesome quote although her dress and all the preparations for the ball had caused kitty great trouble and consideration at this moment, she walked into the ballroom in her elaborate dress over a pink slip as easily and simply as though all the rosettes and lace, all the minute details of her attire, had not cost her or her family a moment's attention. As though she had been born in the tulle and lace with her hair done up high on her head and a rose and two leaves on the top of it. It was one of Kitty's best days. I love that line. It, it That line implying that oh, it's one of mm-hmm. Kitty's best days. Implies that oh, maybe she has sad days. You know, like oh, she this is a really good day for her. Maybe it's implying that she has sad days. Um, that's something I thought when I read this quote, and it continues mm-hmm. says, her dress was not uncomfortable anywhere. Her lace berth did not droop anywhere. Her rosettes were not cr- crushed nor torn off. Her pink slippers with high hollowed out heels did not pinch, but gladdened her feet. And the thick rolls of fair kept up on her head as if they were her own hair. All the three buttons buttoned up without tearing on the long glove mm-hmm. that covered her hand without concealing its lines. The black velvet of her locket nestled with special softness round her neck. That velvet was delicious at home, looking at her neck in the looking glass. Kitty, felt that the velvet was speaking. About all the rest, there might be a doubt, but the velvet was delicious. Kitty smiled here too, at the ball, and she glanced at it in the glass. Her bare shoulders and arms gave Kitty a sense of chill marble, a feeling she particularly liked. Her eyes sparkled, rosy lips could not feel from smiling, and the consciousness of her own attractiveness. Long quote, but I think it kind of...
0: Oh, it's a great part. I remember, mm-hmm. I remember reading it and being like, what? Like, that sounds so nice. Like, I was having to get ready every morning right now, like, dress up to go work at the Capitol being like, oh, imagine if, like, your heels didn't pinch and, like, all these different things. Just the fact that it was, like, such an on day for her was very pleasing to read. But I think it also is – it goes back to the idea of her being the desired woman. Like, she's going – that's her goal. And it describes so much her outfit and, like, how she wants to appear versus then the contrast of the part is later when Anna comes in and they, she's, like, her outfit didn't matter. Yeah. So that's one really of those things
4: it's made beautiful because it's on her yeah
0: mhm so i like and that depth
4: and
1: and it's like yeah. a, i didn't realize this till now but it's like she had high expectations going into this ball and then what we know is that they mm. end up getting shot down she ends up really wanting to go for Vronsky, but like she ends up turning down like five other dudes for the big um, final dance because she wanted to dance with Vronsky, and she ends up getting really bummed out. But mm-hmm. that—that's that, also an interesting idea, though, of like happiness. Because I read I read this interesting book one time about this historian/slash biologist, his name's Yaval Harari. But he said something along the lines that happiness is when our expectations meet reality, and I can't help but think about that. It's like, oh, she had these expectations and they didn't meet reality. Mm-hmm. And there's other sections in the book between Anna Karenina as well where it talks about her descending into reality and her expectations not being met with her husband. And I, I keep thinking about this theme in the book and I just want to hear y'all's thoughts on that. Because I I can think of counter arguments against that, but it does make some sense of how often do we have expectations. Mm-hmm. And they don't meet, and that's the result of our suffering. But I want to hear what y'all thought. Cameron I actually thought that I'm,
0: was ironic. Oh, you can go first, John.
2: Okay, um, Cameron, I that that idea has like come up so much just in my personal life about happiness being ex- where expectations meet reality. So, hearing like that quote sums it up in such a great nutshell. But like where where I see that flower in the book, just to go back to the ice skate rink, just to maybe tie a bow on that scene, is whenever he went down, he said he felt like the sun was approaching him. And then he said the line, which is where expectations met reality. She was more beautiful than he had imagined her. Like that... That he experienced, like something that he experienced exactly what you're talking about of like how, like all of these his imagine his imagination was it was met with reality. Um, yeah, I, I would agree just with what you said that happiness does come from that.
0: So I was gonna say I think it's ironic. Because I've also been thinking a lot about expectations, but more in the regard of expectations are kind of the root of unhappiness because we put expectations on everything. Um, and they're almost always not met because they're kind of just fabricated realities. Um, it's not, that, that's not in a negative sense because often our expectations aren't what's best for us, what we expect or what we want. And so it can be a good thing that they're not met. And reality can exceed our expectations like you're talking about with ice skating rink where he had one expectation and he saw Kitty and it was exceeded. But we as humans can become so attached to an expectation or what we think we want. We can actually make that our highest desire, even if there is something better. So I think more that happiness are, I would say that life is more about finding happiness when our expectations aren't met or in another sense just kind of ridding ourselves of expectations and allowing like God to su- surprise us in life. And yeah, so I th- almost think expectations are more root of disappointment than happiness itself.
2: Yeah. When they aren't rooted in reality. That's the thing.
4: Is that if you well, set expectations up expectations
0: are always hypotheticals cuz it's predicting the future.
4: So like are they rooted become, in reality? You can become subject to your expectations like it's, it's like Anna is, it's like she knows what's happening too. When she like sees her husband and she's like, oh, why did his ears stick out like that? Have they always looked like that? And it's like, but like, she's kind of self-aware of, of while it's happening that like, she knows she's descending into reality and knows that like what she was kind of imagining was a dream. You know, mm-hmm. even, you know when she talks about it, when she sees her son and he's like not as exciting to her as he was last time she's aware of what's happening to her, but mm-hmm. it's like, she can't break out of that dream that she, you know, I don't know. She can't break out of, out of that, um, unmet expectation. It's like, she's at the mercy of it. Um, right? it's about like holding like,
0: the expectations like very loosely. They're great. And when they're met, you can be, it can be something that causes happiness, but if they're not met, you want to be holding onto them loosely so that you can be happy about what, Whatever is different that happens, because it could be just as good, just not what you anticipated.
2: Uh, an interesting distinction that I talked to my friend Mac Thompson about this, and he distinguished expectations from what he calls expectancy. And so, let's just have the scenario where I invite you to a ball. If if my expectations are that you will say yes. And then I go into the conversation and then you refuse me. It's like, I will be disappointed. But if I have this idea to ask you to evolve with expectancy, it's with all of the hope and receiving whatever comes as a gift. Like this I idea given, of like, I, like I want, I of course there's a hope and a desire, but like kind of the open hands let me not grab on too tightly like I'm not going to white knuckle this experience but let me can I open hands go into asking you and whatever you tell me I will use as a springboard to my next as a stepping stone mm-hmm. like I will have now clarity that you don't want to go to the ball with me and I can like I'm now a step closer to my ultimate end and, and I think mm-hmm. that's a helpful distinction because you can still hope I think having like no expectations at all, it, it's just helpful to have.
3: Yeah. You're like moving towards desires, a good thing with an open
2: mind. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just,
0: kind of just describing being optimistic, <laughs> like having, being an optimistic <laughs> I mean, personality a, just
4: inner experience of, of John Allendeary. It's optimistic.
0: No, I think you're right. I, I, could, optimism, but I
2: think ex- expectancy could also be like being open to the negative you know, and seeing Uh, that as a gift. And maybe that's just another layer to my optimism.
1: uh, This may derail (laughs) us even more. You are
2: very good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) I have an interesting (laughs) idea to layer on top of this. But because I think it's the Buddha, the Buddha have this type of belief that you have what's called gratitude and growth. And they believe that you can't have both of those at the same time. So it's like, where's the line between, oh, I'm satisfied and grateful for this experience versus not being too satisfied to move towards an area of growth. And I kind of see this in the sense of. Why
0: is he associating gratitude with like stagnancy? Why can't you be grateful and growing at the same time?
1: Well, well, I mean, you could look at it as a positive or a negative, but I mean. Because if someone that is too satisfied is not moving towards areas of growth, I mean, they would just never get anything done in a way. Because they would just be so satisfied with what was going on right in front of them. that, Like, for example, the lawn. Let's just say the, the lawn was like, looked terrible. But like, there's someone that sees everything is like, oh, I'm just very grateful. I could I could learn to see the lawn in a new, beautiful way. Be like, oh, it's it's very... It's very long, it's very messy, but I see the beauty in it.
3: <laughs>
1: that might be a bad example, but basically what I'm trying to say is that there's this, there's this difference between being, um, there's extremes. Because you can also be in the extreme of growing. be Like, oh, I need to grow and grow and grow, and not realizing that you don't need to do that in order to earn any happiness. You know, there's this balance between the growth, and I think that's what I'm really trying to say, is that the extremes and the edges is where we can be miserable and um, mm-hmm. the, the extreme of com- what about extremely is balanced being, or extremely
4: balanced. I'm <laughs> oh my God. Let's do somebody else's uh, favorite part of the book.
0: I got actually, I was thinking about um, off of what you were just saying, Cam, about like gratitude and growth. One of my favorite scenes was Levin's growth near the end of the chapter when he's going back home. Um, just because I found it like really relatable how he gets so caught up in everything when he's in society and like the drama of the romance with Kitty and then his brother Nicholas and like the political drama of um, like institutions and, and Nicholas getting so upset about how you can't do anything in politics. And then Levin starts going back home and it has this part, um, and I can read it, it's really short. He just says, he felt he was himself again and had no desire to be any different. Now he only wanted to, to be better than he had been before. And so I think Levin is a good example of growth. Um, he goes back home, he looks back at his study, and he's, and it has this part where he's like, I see all the temptations to go back to my life as it was before, but I have to see like Kitty not accepting me. Like you were saying, John is like a springboard into something new and better and different. So I'm going to grow. Um, and I just also like the idea of the, like, you can, you can get very caught up in society and then um, like taking response, starting to take responsibility for everything around you, like taking responsibility for Nicholas and for politics and for all these things. But then he kind of goes back to the countryside and like back home and realizes that he needs to just like be very, very present, which is another thing we, we already talked about. Um, but it was just like a very contented scene. So I really, I really liked that one.
3: Yeah. Cause I think there are times where you can see that he's wrapping up his entire sense of like value and happiness in the success with Kitty, which is like mm-hmm. an obvious expectation to be caught up in the moment with something like that. Um, but you're right. He does take that um, step of like growth when he takes a step back from the city and sees a slightly larger perspective and that optimism that John was talking about.
4: Elias, what was your favorite part of the book? or favorite part of the part?
3: Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if I have a specific scene, but I'm a big fan of, um, of Stepan or just the way he's, uh, described. I think that he's like a really well-developed character. Um, uh, like even So I feel like it starts out in chapter three, talking about his liberalism. Um, it says that he's inclined to liberalism not because of rational reasoning, but because it fits his lifestyle um, and that it allowed him to live the life he wants and stop lying to himself. And like later chapters kind of further develop that kind of liberal mindset that he has. And I feel like it just portrays it in a really logical and like compelling way. Um, I think that first chapter, that chapter three also kind of introduces an idea that I'm a big fan of, of whether or not people have ideas or if ideas have people, Um, especially because he's kind of, he's not, he's not shown having the thought process of like, Oh, I'm going to live this liberal lifestyle. He's just kind of living out his life. And you can kind of see that um, liberalism, sort of um controlling his life rather than him consciously choosing liberalism
2: yeah i I think a line that highlights that is at the end of what you were just reading about his liberal like having the same views on all the subject that the majority did it said he changed them only when the majority did or rather he did not change them but they themselves changed imperceptibly in him yeah, kind of. Just that that line just highlights it. Of uh, like, yeah. kind of, kind of being whipping, whipped by the winds. And Austin, give that. Ill- we talked about this on the phone the other day. Talk about like the reed,
4: It the reed in the wind. Oh, dude, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, we were talking about um, we were talking about Step On, and I was like, yeah, he's like a grass. Um, he's just, he just bends, and so he's easy to be around. You know, whichever way. A person is pushing him or pulling him. You know, he's easy, easygoing, and everyone can't help but love him because um, because he doesn't give any resistance and he doesn't he doesn't scrape up against anyone. Um, whereas, you know, in contrast, mm-hmm. his good friend Levin is like like an oak. You know, that's not going to bend, and you know, people run into him all the time, or he runs into people, and and you know, he's kind of abrasive. Um, but he's very stuck in like this sense of like what he thinks is right or wrong, um, mm-hmm. or or you know his opinion of things is is very outspoken. Um, so I don't know. That was just a little little insight on those guys. That's but sorry, I, I love their relationship. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to my favorite part of the book because I feel like this is a good scene for it. Um, which I'm going to flip to it, but it's it's this uh, lunch that these two super long time friends have together and I love it because they're just like the most opposite people. Um, but they've been friends for so long and they know each other so well that's like, they can't help but love each other. Like, despite them being so different. Um, and I feel like one, one quote that really sums up this duality in the friendship is where Stepan's, um, he says, you know, that's the aim of civilization to make everything an enjoyment and then um, Levin goes, well, if that's its aim, I'd rather be wild. You know, And it's this, this like yes. this little moment where Levin's like, I don't care about everyone else. Like, I want to do like my own thing. And Stefan is like, just he's like moving with, you know, society like he's he's so easily flowing with them. Um, and like you can see his value is to enjoy life, to enjoy the people around and um, Levin is kind of got this mentality of, you know, I'm on my own or like, I've got my own ideas. Um, you know, being in the wilderness is kind of this idea of solitude. But, um, but I love this, this like little meal they share together, because even despite them being so different, like Levin is, is struggling with like this girl that he's going after. He still values his good friend's advice. Like he still really cares what he says um like there's this line where levin goes well what do you say levin said in a trembling voice and feeling all the muscles in his face trembling how do you look at it he's asking this to this guy who like you think he disdains you know he's like this guy who like doesn't believe in the same kind of lifestyle but like levin is literally hanging on to his friend for like some shred of evidence that you know this is a good marriage for him or a good thing to look into with Kitty. So, you know, I love that Man. that little relationship they have, and they're just like yeah, I, at each other and like, yeah. Go ahead, John. Yeah. Okay. So,
2: one one of my favorite quotes from this whole part was in this section, and this is just gonna like, lob home run what you just said. It just <laughs> come on, come on. it's, Okay, this is Eleven speaking, and I can't talk about it with anyone but you. Look, here we are, strangers in everything, different tastes, views, everything, but I know that you love me and understand me, and for that, I love you terribly. So for God's sake, be completely open.
4: Mm, Dude, that's a
2: rich. triumph i like austin i feel like so great i i, I resonate yeah. with that particularly in like my relationship with you i feel like yeah, the way yeah. that we that we talk uh, for anyone listening austin and i are cousins we grew up together um so i've known him through the, the highs and the lows and we have different tendencies of how we see the world but some of the greatest conversations and processing moments in my life have been in that moment. Here we are different tastes views, but I know you love me and I love you terribly. So just be open in, in like, yeah. th- it's such a moment of gold that us yeah, sitting in so the good. truck in the driveway, just breaking down life. And Oh yeah. Oh man.
4: So I, I concur. No, I love that, that meeting of the minds and, um, yeah yeah man, that, i love that you special also. gosh oh dude love you too, man <laughs> come on <laughs> come to new Orleans.
0: it's turned into a romance episode
4: yeah love, love, love. <laughs> russian romance will
3: get
1: will get you man
4: it'll get you yeah yeah <laughs> Woof, dude but like the the conclusion to this little meal they share like um you know they still they don't even see like stuff on like okay so like levin is all like black or white you know like he sees women as like scum or he sees them as fallen angels that he can't even approach like he says that in his own words and his friend says that about him they both know this about his inner feeling as you know and then Stepan is all kind of like you know flowy with the wind whatever you know he appreciates the different shades not just black and white you know, and he says, like, all the variety, all the charm, all the beauty of life are made up of, of light and shade. Um, and after he says this, they both, like, are just kind of chilling and they realize, like, oh, this conversation's over. <laughs> you know, they reach this point and then, like, Oblonsky gets up and, like, goes and hangs out with some other friends and they stop eating together and they just, like, go their separate ways. I just think it's a cool little into the meal of, like, this is where they really separate, you know. This is where they go their several ways. Not that the friendship's over, but like the lunch, the conversation ends at this. What do y'all think about that? Yeah,
3: I think it's cool in that scene that you do, um, that they're so comfortable kind of pushing the limits of the differences of their personalities. And like you said earlier, it kind of comes to that point of it's like, Oh, well, if the point of civilization is to just, have like pleasure and enjoyment than I'd rather be a savage. Like that whole concept is like clearly like a big divide between those big um, personalities. Cause he's just, Stepan's just so easygoing and it's like, it's to a point of being a fault. Like I think his, his wife at some point says that uh, he sees, sees the husband as being happy and healthy and hates the good nature that everyone loves about him. And I think that, like that the, that is the breaking point of being that like open-minded friend to everyone where they'll feel super safe kind of confiding in you and exploring these ideas and being themselves cuz they know that they're going to be completely accepted but then at the same time um, someone wanting to rely on him as a friend to kind of stand up for something I think is where the the fault comes in
4: mm.
1: I feel like I can, this is kind of a stretch, but just in that conversation while they're sitting across the table eating oysters, I think, Austin, the line you said about, no, it was John, that line you said about the biggest thing he appreciates at him is, or is asking him, is to understand him. And Mm. understand, anytime I hear that word, the first thing I think of now is of Anna herself. Because some things I read up on her on the side is that supposedly Anna's motif of her character is understanding. And it ties into a scene that really resonated with me. Um, And it's when Anna enters the room where Dolly is found knitting. Um, And it's kind of self-evident that Dolly is really anxious about the whole situation between her and Stepan, they're still kind of beefing. And I'm just going to read this quote from that section. She says, Keep your hands still, Grisha, she said, and she took up her work, a coverlet she had long been making. She always set to work on it at depressed moments. And now she knitted at it nervously, twitching her fingers and counting the stitches. Though she had sent word the day before to her husband that it was nothing to her whether his sister came or not, she had made everything ready for her arrival. I was expecting your sister-in-law with emotion. Close quote. This kind of resonated with me because this is kind of like how she's coping with this anxiety or this sad moment. Um, I know I resonate with this with, I like will twist <laughs> the strings on my pants. I've always done it since I was a kid. It like will help me focus, but it also helped me cope with anxiety in a stressful situation. Um, I used to like twist my hair, like I had to stop doing that. So I started twisting the, the strings in my in my pants. So like I kind of resonated with Dolly strings. in this situation, like you know, like the little like you know when you tie your pants, like you have pants with strings, like where like, like gym shorts. Strings?
4: Yeah, yeah. Like, like okay, gym shorts. Yeah. Okay, guy. Right, okay, right. yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if it's not there, then I end up playing like if that's not my pants strings. <laughs> <laughs> My my pant, my pants. <laughs> but if that's not there, then I'll play with like a pen or something. But it's just this idea of how do you cope with your anxiety? Like what do you do? And Dolly in this situation is knitting. That's her go to. Um but it goes on to talk about let me see if I can find it. She said, Darling Dolly, I understand, but don't torture yourself. You're so distressed, so overwrought. They look at many things mistakenly. Dolly grew calmer, and for two minutes, both were silent. What's to be done? Think for Anna. Help me. I've thought over everything, and I see nothing. Anna could think of nothing, but her heart responded instantly to each word, to each change of expression of her sister-in-law. And there comes a point where she's like, why can't you just, like, if you can only understand me, and Anna responds quickly, and she's like, no, I do. I do understand you. I do understand you. And it makes me think that if understanding is part of Anna's character, I don't know, a thought I had was, does she want to understand other characters or other people? Because maybe her whole life, she never felt really understood. Ooh. And it was kind of like something that kind of came from like my personal experience too, was sometimes I never felt like people really got me. And the way I would project that was that I would try to really understand everyone around me. Or it would be like another way of like run away from other issues I had to deal with interiorly was just going and projecting it from everyone around me. But I thought that was a very interesting, it was like a self-reflection moment for me in that scene, which I really, it was very insightful. That was really cool. It was a cool idea to think, oh, Maybe Anna's doing the same thing. maybe she's one to understand other people because she never doesn't really feel seen or understood. so that was interesting
4: dude that, like cam yeah, that's insightful.
0: I have a question based off of that. Um, just if you have in your experience any like advice for our listeners or just for us about how to be very present when you're talking to someone and to communicate that understanding like Anna does. Um, Cause something that I've been doing the past three days is answering constituent goals for uh, like for Scalise who I'm working for. And one something that's so interesting is that they, they always um, like call straight in and then just start tirading about what they hate about politics or what they hate about a politician or like what they're angry about. And something that bothers me about politics is that people are very, can be very ingenuine all the time because they get so caught up in the system everything. So what I've been trying to do on the phone calls is just be really present to the people who are even who are just really angry all the time. And it usually catches them off guard. But I could see how it can wear away at people. And it's in American culture, like when you walk by someone or when you talk briefly with someone, it's it's hard to to keep that genuine engagement with someone always. I think that's an art that our culture has lost. So do you have any are any of you guys, any thoughts on how you try to keep a conversation very present and genuine in the moment? Um, or is that something you thought about before?
1: So I actually did think about this. And so it goes back to John and I watched this lecture series um, on Atlas of the Heart with Dr. Brene Brown, which she's awesome. She's a rock star. But that lecture comes to mind whenever she's talking about Empathy and connection. Because, especially if the emotions coming from a place of frustration, I feel like the foundation of the conversation would be at least just connection and understanding where they're coming from. And for me, the big word is believe. Because, um, you know, we all worked at summer camp together, and that'd be a big conversation <laughs> be empathy. And I remember at one point they talked about, um, wearing the other person's shoes. And I over the years it slowly evolved to being like, okay, actually I don't think we can step into someone else's shoes. I think it's almost impossible to step into someone else's personal experience unless you kind of join the club. But one thing you can do is communicate across them that you believe you believe them of what they're feeling and what they're thinking and what they're going through. Uh, Cuz the moment that doesn't happen, there's a disconnect. Like, oh, this person doesn't believe what Mm. I'm going through. At least that's what, that's the only thing I have to contribute to this answering conversation was just through Dr. Brene Brown.
2: Mm. Well, that
0: makes sense because it's like building that trust. Good.
4: Yeah, I was just going to say, like, that shows up in the relationships of, like, you know, when the two people in the book believe in, like, the love shared for one another, there is the connection. You know, with like Dolly and um Stepan, like like they have to like believe that what they're saying is true and they have to believe that the other is like is saying is true and like until that happens they they aren't reconciled. Um and then like mm-hmm. what we were saying about like Stephon um Stepan and um Levin, like the fact that they both believe in each other's love is what is holding them together. So I don't know, I thought that was very cool, Cameron.
1: Because that also builds on the idea of telling the truth to yourself as well. Because that also, I just thought about that as well, is that if you, I think what's holding a lot of the characters back, obviously, is this struggle internally. That struggle between the, what they're internally feeling and what they're
2: externally showing. Um. Oh, man. I, I think a quote and, that highlights this so, oh, wait, do you, you want to finish? Oh,
1: no, I was just going to You go, you go. I want to hear what you (laughs) had
2: to say. I mean, you're just talking about, like, the war within. And there's a quote that Dolly said whenever – I think she's talking to Anna. And she's asking, can I possibly tell him that I don't love him? It wouldn't be true. And so, like, externally, she's putting on this super hard shell and – going in the room, understandably, like way understandably, but she can't bring herself to like denounce their love because that's not, that wouldn't, like she's in the, at this war of like, I want to just let go and throw this away, but she's being honest with herself. Like I can't possibly tell them that I don't love them because it's not true. And and you, you see that within her, but she's like asking these questions. And so like what happens externally is, a mixed bag of so much and to um, so tell the truth to yourself in my experience. And it seems like Dolly's experience is not easy because sometimes it's hard to know what's where you are. Because yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
1: going back to Dr. Brene Brown, like she would say that it is impossible to connect with other people if you can't connect with yourself. And if you don't tell the truth to yourself, you're not going to be able to connect. And there's actually a, quote by Dostoevsky that I love. I love to... I could probably read this every day for the rest of my life, but it goes like this. It says, Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. And I kind
4: of...
1: Father Zosima, But I see this. I <laughs> all the friction between these characters. I just think of that quote. I'm like, they're all kind of disrespecting each other, but it's mainly coming from a place that they're, they're not they're trying to seek the truth within themselves and they can't connect with themselves and therefore they're failing to connect with each other. And An example of that is, yeah, Stepan and, like, Stepan's character. His whole thing is about living in oblivion and he's not he knows he has to ask he wants to ask for Dolly's forgiveness but he decides not to and he's rather lives in this fantasy or lie he ends up turning the corner and does it and it ends up resulting in connection again but it's very interesting to think of that that in order to connect with everyone around you you it starts with telling the truth to yourself
0: mm. I think that's a good like almost a coming of age theme That idea of, um, I've heard it described as as like wisdom is that concept. Wisdom is not assuming more or less than what actually is. And I really, really, I really like that idea. Because I think a big part of um, coming of age, as you might say, like in literature is, or just in our lives, is uh, learning to think a little more objectively and recognize when your subjective experiences are affecting the way that you perceive something. Or like you might be or you're lying to yourself in a way Um, and not idealizing that and learning to step back and and um, not assume more or less than what is. And I had another thought, but I forgot what it was. So someone else can say something.
2: How dare you forget?
0: (laughs) I know the train left the
2: tracks.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You look like you have a lot of thoughts over there. Man, I got too many thoughts. Someone someone bring me home. <laughs> descend
1: lies, descend back into reality.
0: Oh, this is just such a good topic. I feel like we're gonna get into this with Don Quixote though until we have faces. So I'm kind of reluctant to talk too much about it.
3: Oh Emma, you go oh, man, off. Hear it. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> like I said, I think the reason I couldn't articulate my thoughts is that there's too many going on right now
4: i've been writing about speak. this
0: i've been writing about this because i'm writing an article on defining what it means to be in love and i think one of the biggest issues for young adults in love is that we associate or involuntarily blind ourselves in a way like deceive ourselves very often when we're in love and it's part of it's um Part of it is good and, like, biological. The chemicals that are released in your brain when you are, like, attracted to someone or you're in love temporarily blind you in a way. Like, give you this false euphoria so that you can't overlook their flaws and you kind of put them on a pedestal. And it's that spark that gets you engaged and gets you to start pursuing someone. Um, But that's how people tend to define love. And that's the temporary start versus, like, what it actually means to be in love with someone, which is... Um, that long term choosing their good um, after that euphoria is gone. So I've just I'm just thinking about what you were saying, Cam, about um, like so many different themes. Just like about the expect reconciling expectations with reality goes very hand in hand with um, making sure you're not deceiving yourself and setting too lofty expectations versus expectancy, like you said, John. Um, and we just do that very often in love, which is something that I think is going to be a theme in this book. Yeah. I love you use the word euphoria because mm-hmm. I think
4: that's what we see Vronsky chasing. Like he's not, he's not in love with Kitty. He's in love with this euphoria of like being wanted or like being seen and like being, you know, this mm-hmm. like magical little life that they've been living and um, you know, with no intention of marriage, no intention of, of actual commitment or sacrifice. Um, and then he, he, you know, moves directly on to Anna Corona, like as soon as he feels a more weighty euphoria um, from getting her approval and her attention. So mm-hmm. I think it's very applicable to this book, what you're saying about um, people people miss, you know, those two different things, the infatuation and and then the actual sacrifice. Yeah,
2: Yeah. man. And we, we hadn't even tapped into Vronsky and Anna, like their connection. Like, I think this euphoria that y'all are speaking of, it's something that's shared. Like, even though he's maybe chasing something that may be abstract or ideal, there's something very concrete and relational too. like, just to pop into the moment where they they're sharing. I mean, Kitty it's, it's all from Kitty's perspective. So she's watching this unfold and she's looking at Anna's face. It's like, no, it's not the admiration of the crowd that she's drunk with, but the rapture of one man. And so she's kind of seeing that they're, they're catching each other's eye. And then this one liner, She and then she she's looking at she's looking at Anna and then she looks at Vronsky, but what about him? Kitty looked at him and was horrified. What portrayed itself so clearly to Kitty in the mirror of Anna's face, she also saw in him. And so there's this mirror of of what was happening in the rapturing, the being drunk and raptured by one man. She looked over to Vronsky and it was like a mirror. There was like some shared experience of euphoria. That was happening. And so I, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't write off Vronsky as he's like chasing something that's illusory, but it's it's embodied with another person who's feeling the same thing. And there's something so real and concrete and undeniable about that connection that um, I wouldn't write off as simple euphoria.
0: Mm. We've been talking about people deceiving themselves, but I I will say I kind of admired how quickly like Levin and Kitty and and the characters will recognize when affection's not returned and move on really fast. Um, like Levin just they don't I don't think I think it even says like before Kitty says no he can like he can tell that it's not what it's meant to be and he lets go pretty quickly. And in the same sense, Kitty doesn't deceive herself in regard to. To maybe trying to say, oh, well, it's not, there's nothing between Anna and Vronsky. She recognizes everything pretty clearly, which I don't think translates onto like our current reality very well. We were talking about with people, people tend to deceive themselves, almost lead themselves on. But I, I do, I like how you get the perspective from the characters in a pretty honest manner. How they, how like Kitty translates that scene and relays that scene pretty clearly. Mm
2: hmm.
3: Yeah, I think it ties into that idea we were talking about earlier with just um, expectations meeting reality. And everyone, obviously, because it's like a romance novel, everyone's kind of caught up in these big ideas and big emotions. And I feel like it ties in the conversation or the point that's brought up about like a mother's task in terms of being there to pick someone for their daughter to marry. And they kind of talk about how... Uh, like in England at the time women are kind of encouraged to be independent and choose for themselves entirely. And that um, the French way is kind of the opposite and it's all kind of arranged. And then there's the Russian matchmaking, which I guess is maybe somewhere in between, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but uh, it does kind of open up that perspective of if you want like a persistent love Kind of like maybe a mother or like parents' perspective is able to kind of uh, be a little more based in reality, where some of the younger people in the story are obviously kind of caught up in their own euphoria or whatever. And it kind of opens the table as to who mm-hmm. should be making these decisions and how much weight should their opinion um, hold.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like- interesting.
4: No, no, An I'm interesting note on
2: that is <laughs> <laughs> um is uh, kid, I mean Kitty's mother has pretty strong feelings about Vronsky of like oh you should go for Vronsky and not Levin cuz he's just the base country boy but it it's um I I mean when when you see the internal life like I'm kind of rooting for Levin especially after what happens v- at with Vronsky and Anna but Maybe the mother who has the more quote unquote removed perspective who sees it quote unquote more in reality, maybe she's trying to live out her own reality through Ooh. through Ooh. kitty. You know, like the classic like dance mom on your <laughs> channel like whatever TV show of like living their dream through their child.
3: <laughs> yeah, she's not a completely unbiased perspective. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. I mean, you want her to be biased in the sense of, of wanting the best, and like hopefully, it's a slightly objective in, in the right way with the, with the proper motivation. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask if you were her mother, which suitor would you pick for Kitty? Or why do you think Kitty was more attracted to Vronsky than Levin? Because when she describes it, she the way she describes love sounds like she likes him more. She's like, "I feel comfortable, I feel happy," um, and then with with Vronsky, it's just this like fraudulent emotion. But then when she thinks more, of the future, I, she's yeah, more I excited. Vronsky.
4: Yeah,
0: yeah. She's yeah. More I it's excited. more externals.
4: So yeah, I feel like it's it's yeah. more like external societal expectation that's kind of pushing her towards Vronsky.
2: Yeah, I would and choose the guy who is who says he's a wild man and not going with society. I'm on team 11. (laughs) Dude
0: he says I'm a savage.
1: (laughs) He does say at one point that he is a wild man. He does say that. um, Also, this is an interesting quote I want to bring up that's related to this conversation. Kitty says this, quote, no one, or this is her internal dialogue. No one except herself understood her situation. No one knew that a few days before she had refused a man whom she perhaps loved and had refused him because she trusted another. I remember thinking, I was like, okay, so did she, so she might have loved Levin and despite that thought, still refused him because she might have trusted that her and vronsky would work out i'm like come on kitty what are you doing (laughs)
0: Hmm. you know yeah she
1: but it's like a love but that's an interesting idea though like love versus trust like you may love someone but you trust them is that that
2: no i think those are kind of inseparable Man, I feel like like trust is the the fundación, the foundation of relationship. You know, like it, trusting someone means that you will give them your vulnerable pieces, and they will, you know, that they are safe and will be protected. And
4: I mean, and and that's that's real love, though. You know, I feel like he's drawing like a line between like the love that is unknowable, like the future is unknowable, and then there's the safety of Vronsky of like, he's this officer, he's got this future career. Like he's from St. Petersburg. You know, I don't know. There's like these trappings that are more attractive mm. to him. This like, it's like, yeah, it's like safety, you know, like she trusts that. More okay. Than, okay. Okay. Like what would life with Levin be like? She doesn't I'm know. i drift. But she loves him. So I don't know. I feel like there's an interesting, uh contrast between those.
0: I think she yeah. says that she could know, she could visualize life with Levin more than Vronsky. And that's what made it not, well, she said it was dim and vague, but she didn't say she could visualize life with Vronsky. She said it was just more exciting, but I think it was just exciting and it's mystery because she couldn't actually imagine it. Cause she didn't know that much about Vronsky because they say they never have really serious conversations. Versus almost because she could imagine and was very comfortable and trusted her relationship with Levin, she didn't see the future as as very exciting. Even though it's it's more like realistic that they would actually be compatible and actually be in love.
2: I've, I but heard she seems to something, create
0: excitement more than
2: love. I saw I saw a YouTube short uh, recently that said it was a joke. I'm sexual and I love people that I don't know very well. <laughs> <laughs> the more that I get to know someone, the less I fall in love with them. The, the oh, whole beautiful. predicament of the more you know about somebody, you back away, because now it's just too real and ordinary, and maybe that's what you're talking about. Maybe she's cool. sexual. Yes,
4: yeah, that's what she's <laughs> no the Ellander's right there. Oh, gosh.
3: <laughs> when people get to know them or when they get to know people? When they
2: get to no, know no, it's, people. <laughs> when, when I, it's like when I get to know a person too well, that's whenever I fall out of love. <laughs> whenever she tells me she loves me, ugh,
4: that's when I know it's time to get out. We even have that's a flag. <laughs> that's John and Will to the team. <sighs> Uh
3: Yeah, exclude Daniel from that. (laughs) Well, he's (laughs) married.
4: so... Yeah, you you have to exclude him. He's crossed crossed
2: the threshold.
4: (laughs) He's made it out. (laughs) So love and trust, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kim, did you say your favorite scene?
1: I did. My favorite scene was uh, when Dolly was knitting.
2: Oh, and okay. she was full of anxiety. Ah, yes, the pant strings. Hmm. The pad strings. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah. Everyone knows about their own pant strings.
0: <laughs> Everyone has their own pant strings.
4: Oh, that's so good. You don't know how twisted someone else's pant strings are until you've lived in their pants. Mm. But
2: you mm. know that you can't even actually yeah. put people's pants on because that's not possible. Ah. yeah. Okay. Uh. Never, Never mind. mind, here what um what else do
0: we <laughs> he's cover? like, let's move along. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on,
2: yeah, it might be a good time to start wrapping up. Any closing thoughts or
0: hm, is there any hey h- has anyone read part two yet? Is there anything we should be looking mm-hmm. for in part two, or a listener should be?
2: Nope. Hey, I just want to commend uh, any listener who's yet. made it to this far. Any listener that made it this far, man, I commend you. <laughs> yeah, and that reminds me of um, our sponsor for oh, this no. episode is Crosby Ellender.
0: <laughs> Can we get a snippet from or like a sneak peek?
3: <laughs> oh yes.
1: Yeah. Now Pick we will recite the code to free albums for life. The code is C W six five. Don't get that out
2: yet. Don't get that out yet. Type that code and
1: check out You'll get free albums for life
2: What they're making jokes about Is this is your boy John Ellender Part of the (laughs) up and coming folk rock duo Crosby and Ellender Sage Rock Rock. Also known as uh, Sage Check us out on all Platforms where you stream music uh, Over and out
1: Let's go Any
3: other final words
1: No I think we covered Enough ground to end this episode yeah y'all thank y'all for, Thanks for
3: tuning in yeah, Wait, thank y'all can, for, uh, if we have a catchphrase participate? are there any um is there a forum for notes or thoughts to be shared uh yes so
1: we are right now we're on the fable app so right now it's in my instagram so if you just type in cameron paul Vidal on my instagram if you go into my link tree there will be a section in the link tree called fable if you hit that, it'll bring you to the app, into our book club discussion. That's the easiest place to follow along the notes and everything. Also, in the link tree, I also, we also have a sub stack where we're going to be posting all of our write-ups for long-form content for all the notes. But if you just want to have informal discussions, the Fable app is going to be the best place to go. And it has a fancy schedule, which is very nice to see. Um, if, you, if you're confused with the schedule so far, we're just doing a part a week. So the first week of January, we did part one. This upcoming week, we're going to do part two, um, which is the week right now. If that makes sense? Cool? Cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, all, everyone, cool, cool, cool. for listening. If you made this before. Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, Lise.
2: Thank you, John. You look great.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Cam.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited <laughs> to continue going forward. This has been a lot of fun already, and um, this is just the springboard to dive Speech. into... Into culture, into art, into into friendships, that we can dine at the <laughs> table just like Levin and Steva over the mm. feast of the best literature of the Western canon. Maybe we'll dive no, into I the East next time too, we too bring one day. Drinks.
1: Vengeance is mine. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I, I just... it.
4: All right. All right. Thank y'all. Over the recording.
0: Can you just stop the recording?
4: Over yeah, and. Out. But we can,